many of you, it's almost a rhetorical question, but not, how many of you ex have experienced tension in a relationship? If somebody doesn't raise their hand, I, I, I guess they're lying or they just are, have forgotten or I don't know, aren't aware that there's tension. Maybe you're the one causing all the tension, so you're like, no, everything's fine. And the other person's like, oh, you know, there's tension. Well, you might dread seeing someone again because the last time you saw each other, things were said that shouldn't have been said or things were done that shouldn't have been done or things were left undone um, that should have been done. <coughs> now there's tension. Or maybe you have a boss or a coworker or a family member or a friend and when you talk to them, it just feels like you're both pulling and tugging and neither one of you is getting anywhere. The conversation just goes on and on and on and it's like, well, you did this, no, you did that. No, I want you to do this and you, you need to do that and you just go back and forth and there's this tugging and there's tension and both of you are, are waiting for the other person to come around to your point of view, to come around to doing what you want them to be doing and both of you are waiting for that to happen so there's this tension. And last February, uh, Katie and I were blessed to spend a weekend together on a marriage retreat um, called A Weekend to Remember and there was this one session where they started talking about conflict in marriage and how to resolve conflict. And there was an image that they used that, that really stuck with me. And the guy talked about, this is the smallest rope I could find, but of my, from my own stash, of course. But, and so he talked about if there's a knot in a rope, so maybe you have something you're trying to discuss or something you're trying to unravel. Maybe there's a disagreement or there's words said that shouldn't have been said. It's impossible to untie a knot if both people are tugging on either end. And if you wanna untie that knot, somebody has to let go. And that's the only thing that makes it possible for this knot to be untied now. And I'm not gonna try to do it here. That was maybe a mistake. But now, you know, if both people will keep tugging, they're never gonna be able to get that knot out of the rope. There's just this tug of war and there's this tension. And tension in any relationship comes from two people being on the opposite ends of a rope and they're tugging. You know, I need you to respect my feelings. I need you to respect my feelings. I need you to care about my needs. And I need you to meet my needs. Or, and they go back and forth and back and forth. I need you to see my point of view. I need you to understand me. And you both, both people are going back and forth trying to pull the other person back. I mean, how many, how many of you played tug of war in like high school? Or maybe you played it last week. I don't know. Well, Christian, you're still in high school. Anyway, uh, tug of war is always like, uh, you know, get the biggest guy and you like, I don't know, there's always a strategy to like tie the rope around like the biggest guy and he's you know, at the back of the rope and everyone else in the class, that's what we did. We had like classes do tug of war against each other. And then you tug and when two people are like tugging in this tug of war, it's like you're trying to amass people to be on your side or, or facts or events or be like, well, you know, I'm, I want you to come apologize to me because well, you did this, you did it too. And it's like, no, I want you to apologize. I'm like, well, you did it first and you keep, trying to bring new things onto your side to pull the other person to do what you want them to do. And if it's only if one person lets go and walks over to the other person's side. You know, if you're both just tugging and you're far apart, you can't, but if one person would let go and walk over to the other person's side and see their point of view, care about what they're saying, feel what they're feeling, and focus on them and show them that love instead of tugging. And you know, maybe that person's still holding on and being like, you know, they're still wondering, they're still scared, but that other person's walked over and they're like, let me get in your shoes here. Let me understand what you're talking about. Let me care about what you're caring about instead of tugging you over to my side. And this image was so powerful to me because often when Katie and I are you know, having a disagreement or we're trying to resolve a conflict, I'm so concerned about, you know, I need you to admit what you did wrong and apologize. 
No, I need you to care. You're disrespecting me. You need to start respecting me, and then I'll start loving you. And it's like, you know, you keep pulling and saying, I need this from you. I need this from you. I want you to see my point of view. I want you to understand me. I want you to agree with me. I want you to show me respect and love and care. And I keep wanting to tugging, tug her over. And we all know what tension in a relationship feels like. And maybe you have a relationship where you've had tension for so long, you don't even remember what it was like to have that relationship not have tension in it. And the relationships where you have tension are, are probably the people you avoid talking to or the people you avoid seeing, the people that you just hope I, you don't bump into. And these are the people uh, that you complain about to other people. And when your phone rings and you see their name, you know, either you, you, you grit your teeth and you're like preparing for a fight or you answer with this big sigh or you're, you know, your mood just drops and you just feel this heaviness about you when you see their name on your phone and you ignore the call perhaps or just brace yourself to have this conversation. And when you're with these people, you have your guard up. And it's kind of that fight or flight thing. When you, people that you're in tension with, it's like either you wanna, you're ready for a fight or you're ready to run away. And these are people that live with you, they work with you, they're your neighbors, they're uh, family members that you see at holidays. They might even be someone next to you on Sundays worshiping with you that you possibly are like, I, really, I felt tension with them. There was this thing that got said, or there's this thing that got done, or this thing that got left undone, and you feel a tension when you're together. Maybe you quite, can't quite put your finger on what it is, but you're like, something just feels off. There's a tension here with this person. So in your mind right now, just think of someone with whom you have tension or with whom you often have tension. Who are you tugging on the rope with? Who's that person for you? And I just want us to pause. I want you to take a moment and pray for that relationship, and then we'll, we'll come back. So that person you have tension with, pray for that relationship. week we're beginning this series as I said John chapters 13 through 21 and the name is final words from following Jesus um, but this is the thing like I said that I want you to remember that's going to be a theme because there's things Jesus says that it's kind of like I don't totally get that it, 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 how do this and this I found that these two words put together it doesn't so much come into play this week but in the following weeks it'll really come into play of um, connection grows our commitment and commitment grows our connection um, when we are more connected with Jesus, it grows our commitment to him. And the more committed we are to him, the more connected we are. And they work back and forth at the same time in the relationship. And in these chapters that we're covering, Jesus knows he's going to die. He knows he's going to go to the cross. He knows he's going to be resurrected. And these final hours with his disciples, these chapters literally happen over like a three-day period, 13 uh, to 21. Like it's a lot of chapters in the Bible, but it's over a three-day period. And this one... The first couple chapters are over a couple hours. And what Jesus is wanting to do with his disciples in, in the chapters previous, 1 through 12, often there would be, he would do something or say something, like a sign or a miracle or something, and then he would explain it after. Well, in these chapters, there's a big event coming, this death on the cross, and he's explaining it before it happens. He's preparing them for it. He wants them to understand it. And he wants them to understand how are you going to continue following me, walking with me, being in a relationship with me after I die and I'm resurrected and I return to the Father's right side? How do you have a relationship with me when I'm not physically walking alongside you? These guys, 12 guys, have been walking alongside him physically for all this time. He's like, I'm going to be gone, but here's how you continue to be connected with me. And so we're 
I'm excited for this series for those reasons. And the author who wrote all this is a man named John. And John, uh, he's the last person to write a narrative about Jesus' life. There's four of them. They all start with the gospel, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Matthew, gospel according to Luke, and the gospel according to John. And gospel just means good news. Uh, so they're all telling, this is the good news about Jesus. I was an eyewitness to Jesus' life, his death and resurrection, and here's what I have to say about it. And Luke was a, a little bit different situation because he went and recorded the testimony of eyewitnesses later on. Um, but there are all these eyewitness accounts about Jesus' life and death and his resurrection and what he was about. But John, uh, he's the one who writes the latest. He writes about 90 A.D., so Jesus died about 30 A.D., so like 60 years later. Um, so he's with Jesus these three years, and then over the next 60 years, he's teaching people about Jesus. And so when you read his gospel, it has the feel of this guy who has really been like reflecting on all this and really thinking about how do I tell people this that it make, in a way that it makes sense. And it's like, if you read through the book, or I sent that video out in WhatsApp, um, if you watch that video, it's like, wow, this thing is like really thought out. And so this is a guy who's reflected on his time with Jesus, and he... It shows that he has this deep connection with Jesus as well. As I said, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And then that, that's not to say that you know, he's like Jesus' favorite, um, but Jesus did have disciples he spent more time with. But it's his reflection on uh, how close he felt to Jesus, how much connection he felt with Jesus, how loved he felt with Jesus. And so if you, if you think about this guy who walked with Jesus for three years, and then these, things, these crazy, amazing things he's saying about who Jesus is, and these teachings that he's now come to understand after the Holy Spirit came, it, it's quite amazing. And this is especially true in this scene we're looking at to covering today, as he says, I'm the disciple, I'm a disciple whom Jesus loved. And in this passage today, we see why he felt that. In those final hours with his disciples, Jesus did this act that would help them understand what was coming. Um, it's not the most important thing he did. Um, the cross was going to be the most important thing he did, but this thing he does in this <coughs> passage we read would help them understand. And his action would have surely shocked his disciples. So the big idea we're covering, uh, we're going to be looking at, is what Jesus does for us is what we ought to do for others. What Jesus does for us is what we ought to do for others. And sometimes we don't like that word ought. You know, it's like, oh, you know, like, oh, it kind of feels like you know, cramping my style, Jesus. You know, like don't, or, I mean, I use the word ought because Jesus used the word ought, at least the English word that got translated um, what Jesus does for us is what we ought to do for others and it starts with that first part what Jesus does for us we can't skip to the do what Jesus did you know oh, I, I Jesus is telling me I need to do all this stuff no first it starts with what Jesus has done for you what Jesus has done for each of us what Jesus has done for all of us it needs to start there and so let's cover what Jesus does for us in verses 1 through 11 so this week, this final week of Jesus' life, on Sunday he arrives in Jerusalem uh, and he's given a king's welcome. He has these disciples who've been following him. A lot of people have seen him do miracles, have gotten attached to his teaching. And people are thinking, this is the Messiah. This is the king that God always promised he would send us. And so he's coming into Jerusalem, the capital. People are waving palm branches that they picked up along the way. And they're putting like cloaks or their coats down and stuff. And they're singing the praises to God. They're like, God has sent us the king we've been waiting for. This is the Messiah. He's going to come and save us from our enemies. And after four days in Jerusalem, he's teaching people and having discussions with people and having confrontations with the religious leaders. Thursday arrives, and the reason they're in Jerusalem 
um, is because they're coming for the national feast of Passover, which is celebrating how God saved them way back in the day, the biggest salvation event in the Old Testament, the Exodus. It's celebrating that event. So they're coming for this national festival. Um, I can't exactly remember. It's like it's a lot of people came to Jerusalem. I can't remember the exact number, but think of, I don't know, what I don't want to compare it to Mardi Gras or something. You know, just Groundhog's Day, that's better. That's a little more, <laughs> a little more innocent. You know, people just coming and flooding in, and it's like, wow, this place is just like way more packed than usual. I remember, or I remember when uh, Fear Diddley, and this, I don't think it happens here anymore, but that was like crazy. They'd be parked at Emma's house. There'd be cars parked like all the way over to Emma's house on the streets just for people to go to this festival and the fair. And so I think Jerusalem, all of a sudden it swells with all these visitors and people who aren't normally there coming for this, this feast, this festival. And they would have gone to the temple, got their lamb sacrifice, which they needed for the feast that they're going to have that night. So Thursday during the day, they would have got the lamb sacrifice. Thursday night, you have the Passover meal. And so that's the setting of our passage. In verses 1 through 3, they tell us this. It says, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. So what's, as they're eating this dinner together, as they're having supper together, what's on Jesus' mind? We're told what's on his mind. Verse 1 tells us Jesus knows his hour has come. He knows he's about to die. He knows he's going to depart from this world return to the Father, the place he came from. And he has this deep, unending love for his disciples. So he loves his disciples. He knows he's about to die. He's going to go back to the Father. Verse 2 tells us, Jesus also knows that one of his closest disciples, he's got these 12 guys that were with him the most out of anybody, and he's got these 12 guys, and one of them is under the devil's influence. He's, <coughs> instead of following God's will, he's following the devil's will, which is to betray Jesus and take him out. So he has that on his mind as well. And verse 3 tells us that he knows the Father has given all things into his hand. In other words, Jesus is aware that he's the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. And he knows he's come from God. In the beginning he was with God. In the beginning he was God, as we read in the beginning of uh, John's Gospel. He's the Son of God who has eternally existed and who has been eternally loved by the God the Father, and he knows he's going back to God. So it tells us that this is what's on his mind, Jesus knowing all this. And the start of verse 4 says he rose from supper. And so with all that in his mind, what is Jesus rising from supper to do? Is he rising to tell them, hey, guess what? I'm pretty great. You know, I've got all these things in my mind. I know I'm from God. I'm the Son of God. I've got all authority, and I'm going to tell you all these things. Is he rise up to say, guess what? Judas is going to betray me. Uh, let's take care of this. You know, let's get him out of here. Let's tie him up. Let's kill him. You know, let's t let's take care of this betrayer, this traitor. And you know, he has these things in his mind. What does he rise up to do? No, he rises to do something that would have been sh left them all shocked and speechless. And in those days, uh, people wore like open-toed sandals, and it was dusty. And so as you walk around, if you've ever walked around with sandals or flip-flops or whatever, like your feet, especially in the dust, a lot of times we're on concrete and stuff. But if you're in the dust, you just get dirt caked on to your ankles, on your feet. And so people would, would show up for dinner, you know, walking around all day, and their feet would be super dirty. And it was rare that people would, like, wash each other's feet, like, wash that dirt off. If you were, like, going to a fancy dinner party or something, 
like the host of the dinner might have a servant who would then come and do this job. But this was like, even for servants, this was like the most low, like dirty job that you could do. Like getting down, I mean, feet can get smelly anyway, but these are like smelly, <laughs> dirty feet caked on. You ever had like dirt caked on? You're just like washing it off and like who knows what else they're stepping in. And so somebody, it's like the most low, most dirty task you could do. And sometimes peers would wash one another's feet, but it's very rare, and it was like this great display of love if you would do that. But it certainly would not be the job of a leader or a rabbi like Jesus, or someone who they're saying is the Messiah to do this. Um, he would be the last person in this room to ever wash somebody's feet. That'd be unthinkable. And so Jesus gathers his disciples together for this Passover feast, and there's apparently, it's kind of interesting, like why is there a basin of water? It says there's a basin uh, and water available for washing feet. Because Jesus requests that that got put there. Uh, but there's no servant to do the job. You can almost hear the people, one, one, like the disciples wondering, like, okay, like my feet are dirty. There's water. I don't really want to wash my own feet. But I'm also not going to wash his feet. You know, and so you can almost see hear them, like, you know, I don't know if they did or not. It doesn't say it. But you can kind of, like, feel the awkwardness in the room. There's water, our feet are dirty, but there's no servant. What do we do here? Like, I'm certainly not going to do it. Making excuses like, well, you know, they're a little less close to Jesus. They're a little less important. Maybe they should be the ones that volunteer. Certainly not me. You can feel the rope tugging a little bit. They're not saying anything, but you can feel like, well, I'm not going to, you know, who's going to do this? Who's going to do this little job? But Jesus, as we've seen, knowing full well how important he is, rises from supper and, and verse, verse 4 says this. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel tied around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. There would have likely been uh, a lower-to-the-ground U-shaped table that the disciples were eating at. I have a picture. This is most certainly not what it looked like, Da Vinci's Last Supper. That is most certainly not what it looked like for them to be eating the Last Supper. I'll pass this around it would have more, I know this might be hard to see, but it would have more been like this. It's kind of like this U-shape, and reclining at table is something people would do at like dinner parties and these kind of feasts, and they're kind of like laying down. It's like you would lay down, your feet would be away from the table, you'd have this U-shaped thing, you'd be kind of like leaning on an elbow or something, and you'd be eating with this hand, so you'd be turned towards somebody else, talking with them. And so it would look more like that, uh, not like sitting around a table. And there's kind of this other picture here, if you want to look at it, which is like, an olive wood carving of what the Last Supper would have looked like. So they're sitting around this U-shaped table, laying on the ground, reclining, and their feet are behind them back there. And Jesus uh, is wearing these two layers, which most Jewish people would have been wearing. There's like an inner layer and an outer layer. He takes off that outer layer, puts the servant's towel behind him, and then imagine, you know, he's he was reclining at the table, so he gets up, Oh, what's what's Jesus gonna do? Comes over, pours the water. What, you know, what what's he doing? You know, like, what, why is he why is he pouring the water to his stuff? Wait, why is he taking his clothes off? You know, why is he putting this towel? What, he's not he's not going to. And then he takes the basin over, comes up behind somebody's feet, and they're you know they must be they're like leaning down. What, what's he doing? He starts washing the guy's feet. Like, you know, everyone's just speechless. Like there's nothing to be said. Moves to the next guy, comes and washes his feet too. And they're all just, you know, reclining. What, 
what's, you know, maybe they're saying something, but I'd imagine they're just too shocked, comes the next guy, washes his feet too. And he's just, and he's going from one to the other. And finally, Peter says to him, he comes to Peter, and finally Peter, you know, he's always the one speaking up and saying things. He says, Lord, do you wash my feet? He can't fathom one who he calls Lord, who he calls Rabbi, who he calls Master, who he calls Teacher, Messiah. How would you be washing my feet? And Jesus says to him, what I'm doing now, you don't understand. But afterwards, you will understand. And Peter responds, you will never wash my feet. You know, it's, you know, it's kind of like, it's almost like a little tug of war going on there. Jesus is like, I want to serve you in this way. And he's like, no, no, that's not going to happen. And then Jesus you know, finally gets his attention a little bit. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And so that may sound like, well, gee, a little harsh, Jesus. Harsh much? Um, Peter says, Lord, not my feet also. If that's the case, if you don't wash, I don't have any part with you unless you wash me. He gets you know, super excited. He's like, well, let's make sure. Not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And, of course, Peter's responding in his usual, you know, no filter, exaggeration, passion. If you read through the Gospels, Peter's always kind of saying stuff like this. But Jesus brings him back and says, the one who's bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And this conversation with Peter that Jesus has is a conversation Every one of us needs to have with Jesus. Everybody who wants to follow Jesus, everyone who wants to have a connection with Jesus has to have this same connect conversation with Jesus because Jesus comes to each of us and, he, and it's, if I don't wash you, you don't have any part with me. I've died for your sins. I've died to wash you clean of your sins. I've died to wash you clean of the penalty for them. I've died to take on the consequence that you deserve. I've come to make you clean. And if you are unable to allow me to serve you, to die for you, to love you in this way, then you have no part with me. You have no connection with me. In some ways, the connection commitment thing, it's like we have to be willing to let Jesus be so committed to us that he would wash our feet and die for us and love us in this most humbling and humiliating way in order for us to have a connection with him. Because if we say, no, I need to clean myself up, Jesus. No, I could never bring myself to allow you, someone so great, to wash my feet. And it's kind of almost like a pride thing that we would say, like, no, 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 I can't let you do that for me. It takes humility to actually let somebody serve you in that way, to say, yeah, I have this need. My feet are so dirty, but I can't let you do it. You know, And we can say that with lots of things that we're, we have this great need, but, oh, I couldn't put you out to have you serve me in that way. Or, oh, I, you know, that would just be too much. I would feel guilty if you did that. You know, that's a, one of the things we have problems with, of feeling guilty for other people serving us and meeting our needs. And these guys have these dirty feet, and Jesus is trying to wash it. And Peter asks him, Lord, you wash my feet. But the real question is, Lord, do you serve the sentence I deserve? That's what Jesus is saying. He said, you don't understand this now. And as low and degrading as this seems, what I'm about to do is infinitely more low and degrading than what I'm doing in this room. I'm about to go to the cross for you. I'm about to hang naked, nailed, mocked, put on trial, falsely accused, and die as an innocent man. And if you're not able to allow me to wash your feet, how in the world are you going to accept that from me? And so if we are not willing to let Jesus serve us, and so the question is, 
Lord, do you get punished for deeds I've done? Lord, do you allow yourself to have done to you what I know should be done to me? Lord, do you take my place even though you're innocent? My king, my lord, my God, do you bear the penalty for my sin? And the question is, are you willing, are we willing to let Jesus do that for us? Because Jesus says if we won't, that we have no part with him. We're not connected with him. We have to allow Jesus to serve us and do for us what he says we need done for us if we're going to be connected with him. Before we ever commit to Jesus, we first have to allow him to be so committed to us that he's willing to die for us and lay down his life and love for us. Allow him to serve us, to wash us, to save us, to redeem us, and to love us. And that's what Jesus does for us. We must accept his service to us if we're ever to have a part with him and be connected with him. And so that's the first part. We're saying what Jesus does for us is what we ought to do for others. And I was sharing in our gospel fluency group that uh, it's really, Jesus says, I've given you an example here. And somebody can be an example to you without them doing something for you. Like, um, you know, Nick or Michael can be an example of a good parent to me. But that doesn't mean they parented me. And so it's like, oh, Jesus was a good example in that he washed these guys' feet. And so now I should serve other people in humility in that way. But we need to realize Jesus it's not just an example that he did for somebody else, but he does it to us. And now what he's done to us and for us, he now wants us to do for other people. And so the example Jesus gives is always something he's done for us, not just something, he, oh, it's out there, he's done it for other people, and now I should do that for other people. But it's always we're the receivers before we're the givers. And in verses 12 to 20, Jesus focuses on, focuses on what we ought to do for others. And he says this act is symbolic about what is about to happen. And it's also an example. So let's start reading in verse 12. It says, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. uh, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And Jesus knows who he is. He knows how much he's loved. He knows how important he is. He knows that he's the son of God in the flesh. And so he says, anytime you may think that something is below you, or that you deserve better, or someone else should be doing that, they should remember and ask, well, do I think I'm greater than Jesus? That was something that Larry asked when we were studying this passage on Thursday. Do I think I'm greater than Jesus? That Jesus got down and he did this. And he says, I'm sending you as my servants. I'm sending you as my messengers. You know, those are two of our community practices, loving as servants and going as messengers. We're sent as Jesus' servants and messengers. And as we do that, uh, do we think, you know what, Uh, there's some tasks that are actually below me. Like, I get paid too much, you know, I'm too important to my job, or I'm too important to this, or I'm not going to stoop that low. Like, there's certain things I'll do. And it's like, do we think we're greater than Jesus? And he's asking, as we serve one another, um, as we serve other people, as we uh, talk to people and meet people on the street, do we think we're greater than Jesus? And he says to the disciples and to us, when we're tempted to tug on this rope and make demands, you know, who do we think we're, do we think we're greater than Jesus? And he's like, no, when we're interacting with one another when we're interacting with other people and they're like hey I'm hungry 
uh, or I need help with this, and we say like, well, yeah, but I need help with that, and like you should you should know how to do it yourself, and like that's your problem, and you should be able to take care of it. Like you're a grown up, and we say like, you know, I have needs too, and we kind of like tug back and forth, and instead, Jesus, he doesn't play the rope game. He's never even holding on to the rope. He's just like, I know who I am. It's not like he says in his head like, well. Nobody else is doing this, so I guess I've got to do it. It's like knowing fully who he is, knowing fully of his identity, he gets up and he does this. And he's in the rest, verses 18 through 30. We won't read through them, but he says, um, not all of you are committed to me in this way. This hasn't benefited all of you. He says, one of you is going to betray me. And then he kind of gives this, this sign of like the one I put give a piece of bread to and then Peter you know like we said we saw that picture of them reclining at the table and it seems like John is like Jesus is maybe on the back side of him and John's talking to somebody here and then Peter's like yeah, psst, ask Jesus ask Jesus who it is and then John actually it's kind of this cool little moment where it's Jesus or John reclines <coughs> back and it says he puts his head head on his chest you know so we were laying here and I just kind of leaned back and it's like that that closeness and intimacy um, that he had with Jesus, and he's like, Jesus, who is it? The one I'm going to give this piece of bread to. And it seems like John's the only one that hears this. So he does this, gives the piece of bread to Judas, and everyone is like, well, I, I don't get what this means. Like, who's going to betray him? And then Judas, he's like, Judas, do what you need to do. Go, go get it done. Judas leaves, and they're all like, I don't know why he said that. And, but Jesus, there's three, there's several truths that we see here as Jesus is doing these things for us. And first is Jesus serves us because he loves us. And our big idea is what Jesus does for us is what we ought to do for others. And so what are truths about Jesus as he does these things for us? Well, first he serves us because he loves us. Doesn't serve us to get something from us. Serves because he loves. Secondly, Jesus serves us fully knowing who he is. You know, sometimes we think when we say things like, I deserve better than this. You know what? I'm a, you know, whatever, whatever we fill in that blank with. And it's like, I don't deserve to be treated like that. I don't, I shouldn't do that job. You know, I'm a executive or I'm a, you know, whatever it is that we would maybe say that, like, that's why I'm above this thing. Jesus, it says Jesus knows fully who he is. He doesn't uh, have this insecurity. Um, when we refuse, when we think things are below us, it's really insecurity. What are people going to think of me if I do this? It's this insecurity. That's when we say something um, like we deserve more. I don't. I shouldn't have to go that low. That's insecurity talking. Secondly, Jesus serves us fully knowing we won't reciprocate. Jesus serves us fully knowing we won't reciprocate. He washes Judas's feet. He knows Judas is going to betray him, and he washes Peter's feet. And next, in two weeks, um, in the scene we're looking at, he knows Peter's going to deny him three times. So it's not like, okay, I served you, and now you're going to serve me back. They're going to reciprocate back. You know, it's like this transactional thing of like, okay, like we're tugging on this rope. He knows when he lets, he lets go of the rope and he comes over and he loves this person, he's not saying like, you know, we, I need to you know, fight for my importance and to be recognized. When he comes and loves this person, he knows that they might keep holding on to the rope and they might still just keep doing the selfish things they were going to do from the beginning and so it's, it's so easy for us to be like well uh, if I let go 
that other person has to let go of their end too. But that's not the purpose of it. It's not a transactional thing. We have to realize sometimes when we say, like, you know what, I'm going to let go of my end. I'm not going to fight for all the things I want from you. And I'm just going to come and care about you and what you need. Um, the other person may not, at least initially, or maybe even ever, come and say, like, you know what, I want to give you everything you need right now too. They might not do that. Jesus does it knowing they're going to reciprocate. And Jesus serves us, lastly, Jesus serves us fully knowing the cost and the pain. And I think what's, Jesus serves us fully knowing the cost and the pain. And so as he is going to the cross, as he serves these guys, he's not like, okay, if I wash their feet, none of them will abandon me. None of them will deny me. None of them will betray me. No, he does it out of pure love for them, not to get anything. And then he, why we're told about Judas betraying him in this moment, why we're told that he knew about it and that he told his disciples that he knew about it. He says, I want you to know this so that when it does happen, you know that I am he. It's like nobody's, like we saw last week, nobody takes Jesus' life from him. He is not a, a victim of just bad circumstances. He's like, no, I lay down my life. I voluntarily, <coughs> out of love, willingly, lay down my life for you. And I'm telling you, I know who's going to betray me. You know, this isn't a surprise to me. I could stop him if I wanted to. I know who's going to betray me, and I'm letting them betray me because I knowingly, willingly, voluntarily am laying my life down for you. And so he knows the pain and cost of serving. And that's what, it, when, we lay, when we do this, when we're tugging on this rope, it's like, no, you should forgive me first, or no, you should give me respect before I give you love, or no, you should do this before I give you that, or you should, whatever it is, we're saying, like, I, you've hurt me, I'm struggling, I'm in a painful spot, and we say, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to take that, and I'm going to come over here, I'm going to give you what you need. Even though I don't have what I need from you, I'm going to come over and I'm going to love you. And the reason that there's tension in our relationships is because we're trying to pull out of people what we want from them. I need this. I deserve this. And we're trying to yank it out of people. We want love, we want respect, we want to be served, have our needs met, we want patience and kindness and gentleness, we want understanding, we want empathy, we want compliance and obedience. We want people to do our will. So we try to pull that out of people, we try to extract it from people, and we pull and we pull until, and we never let go until we get it. And so, but if we reverse it, now there's this, there's this image no, I, I think it's common in the church, or in, but maybe it's not. Has anybody heard of like, um, like an oxygen oxygen mask analogy where it's like, hey, you know what the ox when the oxygen mask drop down in the airplane, what do they always tell you? Put yours on first before you secure somebody else's. And so it's like, oh, that's such a perfect analogy. You have to take care of yourself before you're able to take care of another person. Like, we need oxygen so we don't pass out and die if we want to serve somebody else. And so often, um, that analogy can be used in that way, and we can think of it in that way. Like, yeah, i got to look out for me and help myself and care for myself and get my needs met before I'm actually able to meet somebody else's needs. But that's, that's just perpetuating the problem of saying, like, well, you know what? No, I need my needs first, and then I'm going to let go of the rope for you. I need this, and then I'm going to let go of the rope for you. It's not recognizing that uh, selfishness and protecting ourselves um, and not caring for other people, that's actually like putting poison in us. And the oxygen mask would be, you know what, I'm, instead of I'm going to serve myself before I serve you, it's I'm going to recognize 
and let Jesus serve me. That's the oxygen mask. Jesus has served me. He's given me all this love. He's and he's the one who's serving all my needs. Like all those things are real things. Needing empathy, needing forgiveness, needing understanding, needing people to care for us and care about our desires and our feelings. Those are all legitimate needs. And it, you know, it's just kind of complex because you can't just, I mean, Jesus isn't a doormat. Um, he wasn't just walking around being like, well, geez, I guess people are just gonna treat me bad. I mean, Jesus didn't, he wasn't a doormat. So being a servant of other people doesn't mean you're a doormat. He willingly, voluntarily, Let's pain come into his life. And so when we are in this war with somebody else, it's like, you know what, put the oxygen mask on, which isn't, you know what, I'm going to come back and love you eventually, but right now I just need to care about me. It's like, no, I'm going to put the oxygen mask on what Jesus has done for me. That's the oxygen mask. I'm going to do for you. That's what, that he has so loved me. That he has laid down his life for me. He's born pain. He's humiliated himself um, and allowed himself to be this spectacle. And he just did it, not holding on to this rope, not tugging. And part of it is, we heard at the beginning of the passage, he has the oxygen mask on too. Knowing that he came from God, that all authority was given to him, knowing that he was going back to God. And we hear in all these passages that he knows the Father loves him. He has that oxygen mask on. And that doesn't make him say, like, you know what? I actually deserve more from you. I'm the son of God. That allows him, I don't need to tug on this rope from you. I don't need to fight with you for this. I can come to you. And our, a relationship isn't supposed to be two people holding onto either end of a rope, tugging and pulling for their needs to be met. It's supposed to be two people in a relationship who aren't holding onto the rope, but l- meeting each other's needs. So it's not supposed to be this. It's supposed to be both people don't have it, and they're caring for each other's needs. You know, that's how God made us. He made us to be reflections of him. As we talked last week, God's people are God's delivery system for his care and guidance. And so God has made us with this in this way that what he's given us is supposed to be used for the benefit of others. What he's given us is supposed to be used for the benefit of others. But too often we're more concerned with others using what God has given them for the benefit of us. But it's supposed to be this other way, not two people being at a distance, tugging on each other. And if we think about what this looks like for us as a church community, Jesus calls us servants. Jesus calls us messengers. And a little um, next week, or not next week, next preaching next week, in two weeks we're going to hear him say uh, very explicitly, this is the command I give you. If there's one thing you do that I have told you, it's this, love others as I've loved you. And he's saying that to the church. And he says, by this, the whole world will know you are my disciples. And so we are in a, live in a world full of people tugging on the rope. I mean, anytime we're gossiping, anytime we're complaining, you know, we're, we're saying, like, I didn't get what I deserved. I got, you know, treated less than what I get. And we tug, tug, and tug, and tug. And the way that we be a light to this world, the way that we show and tell the good news of Jesus is, you know, we just never even grab onto the rope. We just are fully, I want to care about what you need right now. I want to give you love, and I want to serve you, and I'm not even worried about whether you give it to me because I've already put the oxygen mask on, and now I can put it on you and because I've realized Jesus has loved me immensely, and now I can give this to another person. There's more that could be said about all this because some of this can be taken to extreme of like, well, that just means you should never 
ever, 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 ever tell anybody you need something. And that's not the application. Um, but we are very prone to that. That's too easy for us. What God actually says is you were made to meet the needs of others, and they are made to meet you instead of fighting. And, but sometimes we don't know how to help other people, and sometimes we have to make our needs known. I mean, that's a, that's a good and healthy thing. There's this book that Nick and I read that said, you are both needy and needed. God made us as needy people who need things. And that's why we need each other. We're needy people who need one another. You are needy and needed, and that's how God wants to express his generosity and his love um, through us to one another. And this is one of the most powerful ways that we can uh, be witnesses in this in this world. It's like, why, why do you always, you don't seem to get caught up in the drama. You don't seem to get caught up in the, the tension everyone else is getting, and you're just loving freely and serving, and people say things to you, and they do things to you, and you, you don't you don't get in this tension war with them. Like, what's up with that? And that's an opportunity for us to say, well, Jesus has done so much for me. Jesus has loved me so much, and Jesus has served me so much, and I want to show other people that love and service as well. And that's one of the greatest ways we can witness our faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us this truth that Jesus has served us, humbled himself, died so that we could be forgiven, saved, cleaned. We need Jesus to serve us if we're to have a heart with him. We need Jesus to serve us if we're ever to serve and love others. So would you please help us to accept his service, to accept his love so that we could pour that out to other people. In your son's name we pray.